Welcome to the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast brought to you by Break of Day Capital. The show focuses on educating syndicators and apartment owners on how to build systems and manage their properties more efficiently to become a best-in-class operator. 100% straight talk. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Lipsky with Break of Day Capital. Be sure to join our Facebook group, Asset Management Mastery, where we have a great community of thousands of like-minded individuals sharing resources and best practices. Choosing the right insurance coverage for multifamily properties isn't that complicated, if you know who to talk to. At the Garzella Group, we're uniquely qualified to help you navigate the range of policy choices you have, and we're committed to saving you 30% in the process. We do intensive market research and have nationwide relationships, so we can find coverage other insurance brokers simply can't. We should talk. Go to quotenow.biz and we'll start the conversation. Today on the podcast, we have Jerome Maldonado. Jerome is a successful real estate investor, business owner, coach, and speaker. In 1998, he pioneered a new construction company, which eventually led him to purchase a multi-use retail and commercial property to house his business, which led to him to buy many millions more in residential and commercial real estate. I'm happy to say I'm a partner with Jerome on one of those deals in Phoenix, Arizona, an adaptive reuse project. Jerome, welcome to the show. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Yeah, Gary, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure knowing you and doing some business with you. So just like you said in the bio, I kind of stumbled into construction in 1998. As silly as that sounds, I was really in college. I was in multi-level marketing. Our company got shut down in 97. And I got into construction just as a means to pay my bills. And I didn't understand and realize how lucrative it was. I got into concrete. And we still actually own that concrete company today. It's been a blessing, to say the least. And I say a blessing in disguise almost because I've wanted out of it since I started in 1998. And hence, I've continued to evolve, trying to do more things and different things, which led me to investing in real estate because I I wanted to have assets, stuff that just produced rental income. And I didn't know nothing about real estate. I never considered myself a real estate expert. It was just a tool. I used it as one tool in my toolbox. And I started building houses. They were extremely profitable. I still built out small residential subdivisions. It's a great little piece of our cash flow. But I did. I started getting involved in retail back in 2001, 2000, 2001. I started building them brand new, ground up in 2004, got annihilated in the 2008 recession. We made it through it without going bankrupt or losing any properties, but we had to get creative, which is what led me to what we do today. I started buying a lot of multi-unit, small multi-unit properties down in Phoenix in 2009. And that portfolio by 2012 was like 62 doors, nothing to brag about, but it was it was a nice little portfolio. And I sold that for about $3 million. And I invested in a, at the time, what I thought was a big acquisition was $7.8 million apartment complex, 65 units. I just refinanced that thing for $15 million about a year ago. And then we started building this stuff out new in 2016. So, so that's who we are. We're doing a lot of adaptive reuse stuff like we're doing together. I have a couple of those projects going on right now. And then we have ground up multifamily build and hold. Well, let's talk about the new development projects. Do you prefer that over the value add properties? 
I do personally. And there's going to be a time for value out coming very soon. So I'm pretty conservative. When I went to the 2008 recession, I looked at numbers and I'm not the best reader in the world because I'm dyslexic, but math and numbers have always been something that I've been good at. So when I looked at the numbers conducive to 2008 at the height of the market, and in 2016, I saw the stretch of cap rates being pressed to where they were. I saw valuations being pressed in excess of where they were in 2008 and 2016. I bought till about 2018. And then I started to withdraw because I got scared that we were at the top of the market in 2018, which rightfully so, it had been a full decade since the recession. We tend to go into a market correction every 10 years. And so the market tends to correct about every decade, give or take, by two years. And we hadn't seen that. And so at the time, because of the compression and cap rates being at, I saw 8%, 7%, 6%, pushing to 5%. And then we started seeing four sub 3% cap rates. It was just crazy. So I just looked at it in perspective to the value of my time versus returns. And with constructing new builds, I could control in so many ways because of my experience, my profits and a much larger cap rate and a much larger valuation at the end of construction where my profitability was immensely greater than what I could get in value add. So in the market we just came out of, new construction ground up was definitely more desirable than value add product. Now we're going to move into a different time if interest rates hold high long enough. And so as much as I hate the high interest rates because we get leveraged, right? But there's some positivity out of that. So investors understand that one of the biggest things that we look for is great values. But when values are high, it's extremely tough to purchase. And when values are high and cap rates are low, the spread of profitability becomes a lot riskier. So now that interest rates are rising, cap rates have to go up in parallel to interest rates because you can't afford the debt otherwise. And so when that happens and cap rates rise, values drop. And when values drop, it's the time to buy. And so now we're going in the opposite direction. So if we can hold high interest rates throughout the 2023 year, as much as I hate saying that, I think there's going to be more values and the value add proposition is going to be more profitable in a timely fashion than new construction. When that happens, we'll continue to push more towards the value add sector at that time. When you're looking at these new construction deals, what kind of criteria are you looking for in the, in the potential land purchase? So I look at 2019 numbers. I compare them to 2019 numbers. It's a great status quo to look at. 2019, it was a great stable market. We weren't having home runs, but it wasn't declining either. We had a good, healthy growth economically, demographically in areas that are growing. And so what I look at is in 2019, we were looking at land, non-entitled land, about $10,000 per door. Okay, in multifamily. Now, things got a little crazy where we were paying in excess. Well, we weren't, but investors, developers were paying in excess of $30,000 per door, depending on markets. But we were pushing as high as $20,000 per door at the height of the market. And so now we're looking closer down to about that $12,000, $13,000 per door or below non entitled land. Um, non entitled land meaning it's not zone ready. It's prospectively going to get zone ready. The city will allow it. It just has to go through the formal process. And once you do that, the valuation of the land goes up substantially. Hence, that's what we'll pay for non-developed land. When we do look for land that's entitled, willing to pay a little bit more because of time. 
It takes usually about a year to entitle a property, depending on the municipality, sometimes more, sometimes less, but someplace in that spectrum. Now, that year, if you can save it and you can turn dirt right away for most developers, they can hit the target market of their development as far as numbers are concerned a lot quicker. So the value and the risk goes down because they can turn dirt on that property immediately. So when we look for land, it depends whether we find it entitled or non-entitled. And I'll tell you that most lots are unentitled. Even if they say they're entitled, there's entitlement work that needs to be done. So those are two main criterias that we look for. And what are the biggest obstacles you're facing now on new construction besides the higher interest rates? It's the uh, valuations, the uh, 70% loan to cost ratio because values are lower. The problem with new construction right now is the banks, the way that they're appraising properties are extremely more conservative. Banks are, are smart. They're in business. And so like I always tell people, if a bank's business is to lend money, their profits come from the returns. And so they should be your ally in any project. Meaning that if they can't pencil your project and you're trying to force the numbers, you should caution yourself. So with construction projects right now, you got to be really careful because with cap rates going up, even though they're in your benefit for higher cash flow, it also decreases the valuation, which means that you're going to have to come to the table with larger amounts of money to meet the loan to value and the loan to cost ratio. When you're doing new construction, there's no value there because it's not built yet. So they base it on loan to cost, the cost to build the asset. And so when valuations drop, your cost parameters have to meet the value parameters. And when there's that spread variance that you can't meet because the values have dropped, you yourself as an investor or your investment group has to make the spread between that variable. And banks aren't willing to take as much risk where a year ago, Gary, they were willing to sit on 80% loan to cost or 80% loan to value. Now, most good credited, established, resume investors are sitting at a spread of about 70% loan to value or loan to cost, depending on whether you're building new or doing value add. So that's a big challenge with banks right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we face it on our project as well. Yeah. What would be uh, some of the biggest lessons you've learned that you would tell your younger self? Man, Gary, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have went big, quicker, younger. You know, <laughs> I didn't think I was playing it safe. I thought I was playing it big. I was doing these, what I say, little now. And so if you're watching this and you're new and investing, don't take this as ignorance and, and less of what you're doing. This is just my perspective on things. But damn, I was doing these little $8 million deals forever. And between three and $8 million, I used to call it my sweet spot. And that's all the stuff that got me in trouble. But in spite of it getting me in trouble in 2008, I continued doing it. But I did it in a different market sector. The problem with those small numbers, the small amount of doors, is that there's way more risk because your profit spread is compressed. You don't have as much margin spread to be able to fix problems financially when things get tough. The thing that's great about larger assets is that you have a lot more profitability, a lot bigger margin spread. So hence, they're substantially safer to own. Plus, as you know, most people don't realize this, but institutions... They love large assets because you can get third-party property management companies that are not mom-and-pop management property management companies to manage these assets for you. And so you get sophisticated professionals that are managing your assets, and now you're auditing paper instead of people. And um, you let them audit people. When your paper and your numbers don't add up, you just make phone calls, and things get fixed most of the time, right? But it's more hands-off. I was such a hands-on person early years high stress. 
and a lot of variables. Now, large assets, we don't even have to manage the properties. We just have to manage paper. And for people that are watching right now, Gary, or listening, the biggest thing is they sit back and I think they feel as if they don't have the financial means and resources to obtain going big. And the reality is, and I think you can uh, attest to this, is that it's just the lack of knowledge and wisdom as to how the financial institutions and the assets that we're talking about actually work and what banks and institutions are looking for. It's less money, more education, and, and the resources are there once you understand the actual business. So I wish I would have went big earlier. Yeah, I agree. Our first deal was a 42-unit. I think we paid $1.65 million, and we absolutely killed it on the rents. We pretty much doubled rents. Most of the residents stayed. We sold it in, in two years for about 1.7x, and we got a, a much bigger deal. Our next deal was a $15 million because we partnered with the right people, and our rents didn't go up nearly as much. We did well, and we you know doubled people's investment in, in a much shorter time because we had this so many more units. Yeah, hands down. And then even in construction, you would think that you would learn this earlier, as gullible as I was being in the business since 1998. It's just as much work for me to pull a small residential subdivision out of the ground as it is to entitle and build a 200-unit apartment complex. And the construction itself is almost equally as painful. There's a few bigger moving pieces in the beginning, but the reality is it's all the same. It's not any different. And I think people get intimidated by the visual perspective of this large asset, but the reality of it in construction and in development, it's almost the same, you know? So yeah, definitely, definitely. It's more of an intimidation factor that I think we encounter as human beings than it is really the reality of how things work. Absolutely. So what do you see transpiring in the next 12 to 18 months on uh, developers working on projects? I know a lot of people have put some of these projects on hold because of the high interest rates. What do you see happening? Yeah, I think we're going to see more of that this year. I think you're going to see commercial projects stand stagnant. We're actually waiting and looking for those. It's where financial institutions, like it's kind of like what happened to us. We'll tell the story real quick in a nutshell. You know, we had assessed our project at over $30 million. The valuation came in at like $8 million less. Last minute, seven days before we're supposed to close, they tell us we need to come up with $1.7 million, right? So we were able to pony it up. Thank God we had the financial resources to do that on such a, a short period of time. But there's variables. Right now, people's businesses are also compressed because of quote-unquote recessionary market that we're in. And uh, money is expensive right now. So when money is expensive, people don't have the expendable capital and liquidity that they once did a, a year or two ago. So when that happens, the means and availability to raise capital sometimes becomes a little bit more challenging. So for investors and developers, what happens is if they go to the bank, they're looking for loans, they think they're ready to fund, bank asks them for more money and they can't come to the table with it. They're trying to pony up the capital. And if they can't, the project goes dormant. And then when that project goes dormant, there's contractors that are not paid. There's permits that expire. The list just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so it's a domino effect. And so you will see this happen this next year. And so hence to what we were talking about, once it goes to a bankruptcy court, title is free and clear, there's opportunity in those projects. And we'll be looking for those. We'll be looking for some of those. But I don't think that's going to happen to everybody. I think that construction will slow down a little bit. This is also a time that I think that there's opportunity. I've always said when there's blood on the wall, there's opportunity. And so where other people's bleed sometimes because they've made irrational decisions and they penciled projects that they shouldn't have. 
you know, when I talk about being in alignment with the banks, it's very important because if you're not and you're trying to force numbers, which a lot of people do, you back yourself into a dark, lonely corner. And when that happens, there's opportunity for those of us who, who understand the game, hopefully a little bit more wisely, right? And so there's going to be a lot of opportunity. I think land prices are going to go down. I think this is the time right now to strategically structure ourselves for 2024 and potentially 2025. Like I don't have a crystal ball, but if I have to base it on where we're going economically and with the election year coming, I think that interest rates will stay high through 2023. The Democratic Party is going to lower interest rates because it's a four-year term for Biden. They want to get Biden reelected, obviously. And the only way they're going to do so is by lowering interest rates. And it's not just Biden. This happens historically every, every election year. So traditionally, especially on a four-year term, if you look at history, interest rates tend to drop. And so this is the time now where interest rates are high that you can buy for a discounted price and then just refinance later. And so that's kind of my perspective on how I'm looking at the light down the, at the end of the tunnel and where things are kind of going right now. Yep. I totally agree. I totally agree. Tons of opportunity. So Jerome, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about ground up development, what you see in the future. Tell the listeners where they can find out more about you. And I know you have a coaching program as well. So mention that. Yeah. So that's the way we raise a lot of capital for our projects. Come in, we help people make money and then we help them deploy it into long-term residual investments, you know, our multifamily and, and investments. So we do have a, an education platform that we do. And so we have the Build Wealth Mastermind and our Buy Land Build House model um, that we utilize. But we're, we're real easy to find, Gary. My name is in the show notes. And if you just Google me or go into any social media platform with my name, you'll be able to find us to outreach me, my team, just DM us or hit us up on any of the messenger platforms that are out there. And myself, my team, we're happy to embrace any questions and anybody who has any comments or, or any information we can help assist them with. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jerome. And this is Gary Lipsky signing off. I'll be back next week with another informative episode on the Real Estate Asset Management Podcast. To all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and like, subscribe, and review this podcast as it will help us grow our audience and reach more people. And if you'd like to learn more about what we do at Break of Day Capital, head over to our website, breakofdaycapital.com and sign up for our newsletter and or fill out our investor application. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.